Good evening. Uh, another recording, this time really within the A21 comparative US-UK politics. So the focus in the revised uh, spec is very much on the US uh, political system, um, the legislature, Congress and the presidency. It used to focus a lot more on the Constitution. And while that has been dropped as a standalone question, it's still very important to know of the relationship between, say, the president, Article 2 of the Constitution, Congress, Article 1, Supreme Court, Article 3, and then the first 10 amendments, Bill of Rights, and the remaining amendments, limited number, obviously, because of the difficulty in actually uh, passing a constitutional amendment. Uh, I mean, take, for instance, the 22nd Amendment, which restricts an American president to two terms. And uh, in the light of, obviously, Trump leaving office, some issues arise about the constitutionality of his, his current position. Actually, the Constitution is, is fairly quiet on, on things like the uh, inauguration and the transition. Uh, those have very much been worked out as perhaps a, a matter of um, convention rather than constitution. Okay, so um, this is a series of lectures on the President of the United States. The lecturer is Dr. John Herbert from Keele University. Keele is quite close to Stoke, uh, uh, not a place in the world you'd probably want to visit, but it's a, it's a fine university. Uh, but anyway, um, John Herbert is going to look at the Office of the President of the United States, focusing particularly on the extent of the President's powers. Questions often would be on, comparative ones would obviously be contrasting, comparing the state to extent to which the President or Prime Minister is more powerful, more influential, more effective as a legislator. Uh, legislator. Uh, etc. <clears throat> and also the extent to which they're more effective within, say, for instance, their own administration. In broad, simple terms, normally the president is seen as much more powerful in terms of controlling his own executive cabinet, for instance, and what's called the executive office. Prime ministers are seen as more constrained by that. Um, and in the legislative side, it's often seen that prime ministers who ultimately clearly have to get their legislation through, but their powers are, are much more significant there. Sometimes we talk about elective dictatorship, um, but it's much more seen in terms of government rather than simply prime minister. The president it is uh, much more seen as a situation where the president's success very much depends upon whether his uh, party controls uh, the Congress or what part it controls. Clearly coming up in the next day or two is the uh, runoff elections in Georgia. Um, Chances are that both will not go to the Democrats. It's, it's hard to say. It's, it's, it's a tricky one to call, particularly given the fact that Trump says the whole election process is now fraudulent and therefore it's hardly encouraging his base uh, to go out and vote uh, Republican. But we shall see uh, in the next couple of days. But if it was to go to both of the Democrats, then you'd have this bizarre thing in a system based on separation of powers of the vice president, Kamala Harris, uh, actually as president of the Senate, uh, having the casting vote. So it would give arguably an, a, a greater potential for Biden's presidency to be able to get legislative, gain legislative successes. So anyway, um, Herbert also then looks at uh, the sync between what are called the formal, to say those based entrenched in the constitution and the informal powers of the presidency. And he relates these particularly to how this has expanded, uh, particularly the informal powers expanded in recent decades, particularly also after 9-11. Uh, we talked about George W. Bush uh, as the unitary president, uh, taking in if you like, excessive powers or extra powers because of the security situation. Uh, then in the third module, module, he talks about the American political scientist Richard Neustadt's um, reference to the president's authority very much lying 
arguably only in the power to persuade and the various political institutions that comprise the separation of powers. And finally, he examines also another famous writer, Arthur Schlesinger, who was an advisor to democratic presidents in the 60s, but his reference to what were called the imperial presidency's thesis is particularly applied to presidents like Nixon and then arguably revived under presidents like Reagan. Uh, which argued that contrary to uh, Neustadt's model, the president was actually capable of bypassing the democratic checks and balance of the constitution and maintaining a direct hold in power. So we'll just go to the first of these lectures, which is about the president and the constitution. So uh, it lasts 11 minutes 10, uh, then the formal and informal powers 11 minutes 55. The big one is the leadership and the power to persuade, um, looking very much at Neustadt's ideas, 20 minutes and 38. And finally, referring to um, the views of uh, Arthur Schlesinger, bringing that up to date, executive power and the imperial presidency. So let's go with that one. Okay, the presidency and the constitution. Hello, I'm John Herbert. I'm a senior lecturer in US politics at Keele University and I'm going to speak to you today about the US presidency. This is the first of four modules on the presidency um, where I'm going to focus largely on the nature of the US Constitution and how that set up the presidency. I'm going to talk a bit about the founding fathers' vision of the presidency and how they expect this to be a weak office. And we're going to talk a lot about the formal powers of the presidency as well. Okay, so the starting point really is that we think of the president as an extraordinarily powerful person, but this was not the intent at all when the founding fathers sat down and wrote the constitution. What they wanted to do was to create an insignificant office, a weak office. Now, there was plenty of contention at the Constitutional Convention over what this presidency should be, but the overall uh, assumption was that they would create an office that was not a hub of enormous power. All right? the, uh, the founding fathers had been part of a fighting force to get rid of the British, to overthrow the tyranny of King George. They didn't want to create a new monarchy in this new independent United States. They wanted an office which was constrained. And when you read the Constitution, it's infused with that fear of the presidency being too powerful. Uh, Edmund Randolph, who was uh, once governor of Virginia, said that, that he still feared, even after the convention where they tried to constrain the presidency, he feared that this presidency was the fetus of monarchy, which kind of speaks to this idea that they really worried about how powerful this office would be. And you can see in the Constitution how the presidency was developed in this constrained way. First of all, you'll note that it's not even the first article in the Constitution. The presidency is the second article behind Congress. And, of course, the principles of separation of powers and checks and balances uh, were both there to try and make sure that the presidency didn't become a dominant figure, that they wouldn't create a new king. So when you look at the Constitution, you find that actually the formal powers laid out in that Constitution are really quite limited. 
Um, it's best to go through them one by one to just bring out how each one works and then to think a little bit about how it's constrained and how these powers were compromised. So the first thing that the Constitution says is that the President is to be the chief executive. And the Constitution is really vague on what that actually means. It was kind of a, a, the executive power was given to the presidency, but it wasn't specified as to what this would be. Um, and the assumption was that the federal government, this central government for these U new United States, would be small. So, in fact, it wasn't assumed that the executive power would be that significant. The presidency was given treaty-making powers, too, in the Constitution. But these treaty-making powers were compromised by the fact that anything the president went off and negotiated with other nations would then have to be ratified by the Senate within Congress. So, in fact, the president didn't have the power to go and make foreign policy. They could simply negotiate treaties that Senate, the Senate would then sign off on. This was very much a compromised power. Um, the presidency was made commander-in-chief, which sounds an extraordinary power and indeed subsequently becomes very important. But in fact, at the time, making the president commander-in-chief was not seen as a grant of extraordinary power either. Um, the idea was that this new United States would reject the ways of the old world and not be involved in having a foreign policy. It would sit a safe distance away from Europe. So to be commander-in-chief was not to lead a standing army or to oversee nu nuclear weapons or anything that we think of today, but actually was about the fact that if the United States was to be invaded by a foreign power, someone would need to be commanding the military forces, which would have to be mustered. Those, that military would have to be created by bringing uh, together um, the militias from various states and they would need one commander. So the commander-in-chief power was not as significant as we would see it today. The presidency is given the veto. Now, the veto power is a formal power. It's detailed in the Constitution. The idea here was one of checks and balances. Congress was given the power to write the laws, so actually to decide what the law of the land was, would be, but the president was given the constraint on them of being able to veto anything they did. Effectively, a president needs to sign legislation for it to become the law of the land. So the president was given this power to constrain Congress. But even then, the founding fathers feared that presidents would have too much power, so they wouldn't even give the president an unqualified veto. What they did was set up a system where Congress would pass the legislation. The president could veto it, but then Congress, if it really wanted to do something, two-thirds majorities required in both the House of Representatives and the Senate, then they could override the president's veto. So it was even giving the president a veto in the Constitution was a qualified veto. There was a limitation there. Uh, the president's given the power to make executive appointments in the Constitution. That's another formal power. The problem with the executive appointments power is the president, who is, after all, appointing the people to head the federal departments he's supposed to oversee, that he's supposed to be leading, 
He's only given the power to nominate people to most of those positions. Senate, within Congress, retains the right to confirm those appointments. So a nomination is made by the president, but if the Senate turns around and says no, then the president can't actually employ who they want to to head the federal departments they're supposed to oversee. So again, you've got checks and balances in play here and you've got the presidency constrained even in terms of get, trying to get on with the business of implementing federal laws they're constrained by congress there are reprieves and pardons um, which are a limited formal power uh, a few presidents have used these uh, in a sort of coordinated way to employ as a policy tool so for example towards the end of his second term president obama used this to deal with certain kinds of drug offenses he used this this systematically to try and deal with the uh, widely perceived as unjust sentencing of uh, some drug offenders but largely this is a a minor uh, limited power. So in fact, when you stack up the formal powers in the Constitution as given by the Founding Fathers, the presidency is basically quite a weak and constrained institution. That's not coincidence. That was a matter of intent. Even the name, the president, was supposed to represent the idea that this office was not all-powerful. To preside over a meeting is merely to chair it, to see it, see it running. So that even the term president was supposed to be marking out the idea that this office was not incredibly powerful. Now, that means that when one thinks about the presidency within the US political system, a lot of the real power the ability to get the federal government to do things lies elsewhere. So you're talking about, for example, the power to write the laws, legislation, that lying with Congress. The budgetary power, the capacity to actually spend money, that lies with Congress. There's the judicial power, the power to interpret the laws through Supreme Court's power of judicial review, lies with the Supreme Court, not with the presidency. That's what the Constitution sets up. And then, of course, there are many other players in the political system that aren't necessarily covered in the Constitution. Interest groups, the media, political parties, and, of course, the, the states within a federal system of government. All of these are other players. So when you think of the American political system and the presidency's position within it, the classic way to interpret it is to say, look at all these different centres of power around the Washington system. Those don't lie with the presidency. The president is not in a position to issue commands and to expect the rest of the system to jump. So when you start thinking about the office, that's kind of your key starting point. The presidency is simply given this limited role, this executive role of implementing the laws. Uh, people could refer to it as a kind of clerkship, an administrative role, to be chief clerk. And the early conduct of the office really reinforces this pattern. George Washington is very careful about how little he asserts the power of the presidency because he believes in a lesser, weaker presidency. And it's represent, this sort of weakness is represented in a number of forms. You start talking about the size of the institution. The White House as such 
barely existed as an institution. Washington employed a nephew from his own pocket. That was his White House staff. Even when we get through to 1922, so actually we're only talking about a century ago, we're simply talking about a staff of about 31 people, most of whom are clerks and administrators, very low-level figures. And when we start talking about who was in the job, we talk about people who didn't necessarily leave a deep mark on history. You won't be discussing a lot of Millard Fillmore's achievements when you start thinking about the US presidency. Um, there are exceptions, of course, and we need to talk about those a little bit. But this was how the system was designed. And the Constitution is a crucial starting point in understanding the aim to create a small, marginal institution of the presidency with all these dispersed powers across the Washington system. It's not a command position, and it was never intended to be. Hello. In this second module, I'm going to talk a little bit about how the formal powers of the presidency have grown in certain cases, and I'm going to talk about the informal powers of the presidency. So it's important to make that differentiation really clear. The Constitution issues certain powers direct to the presidency. They're there, you can read them. Then there are a series of informal powers that have come about, partly because of the way the Constitution was written. You won't find these powers actually written in the Constitution, but you will be able to see how the way it's written sets them up, and partly through practice, basically how the US political system has run over the last few years has given the presidency extra power. So I'm going to take you through a series of formal powers, then informal powers. So formal powers, I said in the previous module, have been constrained a lot by the way the Constitution was written. But in some cases, the presidency is kind of broken out, if you like, of those constraints and has gained more influence by using some of the formal powers and expanding their meaning and their application. So the most obvious example of this is the commander-in-chief power. It's one little phrase there in the Constitution. And as I said in the previous module, the idea was that the president would command the force, defensive forces against an invasion. That was kind of the, the basic idea here for a country that would have virtually no foreign policy. Over time, of course, that's radically changed. And when we now think of the power of the presidency and think of it as a powerful institution, part of that is about the change in America's role in the world, which really took off after the Cold War and the decision to resist the Russians, the Soviet, then Soviet Union, um, and has continued as the US has played such a significant um, role in world politics. So the commander-in-chief power, which was originally very much constrained, is now an empowerment where presidents have said, OK, I am the commander of this nation's standing military forces. I have my finger on the nuclear button. I can organise bombings of other countries at the drop of a hat. And I, as president, will take that leadership role. I will be responsible for the nation's national security. And that 
decision and largely Congress's tolerance of it has given the president enormous influence over foreign policy. So that one little phrase has been transformed into a series of practices where um, President Obama was able to um, commit military forces to Libya, for example, in the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi, um, where Donald Trump has launched uh, a bombing of Syria, um, where President George W. Bush was willing to hold American citizens accused of terrorist offences without actually charging them of, with a crime. Um, that national security rhetoric under the president's responsibilities as commander-in-chief, as the president claims it, has been a really significant addition to presidential power. And there are other examples of these formal powers being um, very significant in ways that the Founding Fathers hadn't intended. So another obvious example is the veto power. Now, you'll remember from the previous module that the veto power was the idea that if Congress passed legislation, the president could veto it. That could be overridden if Congress really wanted to um, back a piece of legislation. But the veto is incredibly important because of the way presidents have used it. So the way this works is that Congress is writing a law. They're putting a lot of work into dealing with constituents, interests and so on to put a piece of legislation together. But they all know in the background, that if this is actually to become the law of the land, if this is their, their efforts are all going to be worthwhile, they're going to need the president's signature on that bill. That's the only way they can get this thing done. That means they fear the president's ability to veto, and the president knows that, and the presidency can threaten to veto. The presidency can begin to shape the bargaining process going on in Congress by saying, no, I don't fancy what you're preparing there, don't like that, you're going to have to change it this way, or I won't sign it. And you get that first sense of how the checks and balances and the separation of powers both play out here in the relationship between President and Congress here. Because what you get is the Congress watching warily, trying to work out whether the President is going to veto the piece of legislation. And you get the President trying to calculate whether that veto, if they use it, is actually overridable by Congress. Will Congress get its act together to override a veto? So that exchange and that bargaining process develops that is crucial to understanding presidential congressional relations. So the Congress may pass the bill, the president may choose to sign it or veto it. And then, in turn, if it has been vetoed, Congress can decide whether to override it or not. The key thing is it gives the president a seat at the bargaining table. It means the president's staff are sent into those meetings with the legislators to say, this is what the president wants. This is how you should change your proposal. This is what you should be writing into the law. So the veto is really important. And if you just look at the language, you miss the underlying power dynamics going on. So that's another example of how formal powers have developed in really interesting ways that have empowered the presidency. OK, so you can look at formal powers and how they're used and the kind of politics that grows up around them. You can also look at informal powers. And there are many scholars who argue that the informal powers are just as or even more important than the formal powers. Now, a lot of this starts with the fact that the Constitution is written in a way that sets up the single executive, one person as president. 
Right? That wasn't a given when the Constitutional Convention met. They talked about a committee of 13 people to preside, for example. But what they do is they create one office for one person, a vice presidency, and then they make those elected by the whole nation. All right, so it's not just the single executive, it's that they become, president and vice president, the only people who can genuinely claim to have a national mandate, that they are officers of the federal government elected by the whole country. Now, a lot of the informal powers that presidents have come from that status as the single nationally elected figure, and that possession of arguably a mandate to lead. So when you look at the other informal powers, thinking, think of them in that context and think of how that relationship works with the public as well, the public looking to this single figure as their leader. Um, some brilliant survey work done way back in the 1970s where... Um, political scientists worked out that people identify with the president when they're very young. They did uh, some really interesting survey work with kids of sort of six, seven, eight, nine. A guy called Fred Greenstein did this stuff and found out that even kids of that age were looking at the presidency and equating them with the government and with responsibility. So you get um, the idea that kids think, oh, the president's job is to give daddy a job. Um, the president's job is to help ducks and so on. So you get a sense, even at that age, the presidency is a presence in young people's minds and, and a sense that they have some kind of national identity that people relate to and look to for leadership. So that profile as a single leader is really important. And obviously the, one of the most important ways this comes out is in terms of the president's ability to communicate with the public as this uh, representative of the governmental system. Now, there are various terms used for this. Um, Theodore Roosevelt, who was a, a president at the turn of the around the turn of the last century, referred to this as the bully pulpit. The idea that the president was like um, a religious figure on a Sunday, holding forth to people about uh, how they should think and how they should act. It was this idea that he had this incredible vantage point to speak to people. When he said bully pulpit, he didn't mean in terms of bullying. He meant bully as in bully for you, good for you, good for me, because I'm president and I can do this stuff. Um, so the idea is the president has this uh, communicator-in-chief role. It's not formally defined as such. Some scholars have used this term. This idea of being able to go and speak to the people. That's partly about the rise of the electronic media with radio, then television, then the internet. There was an idea of focusing on federal government in terms of needing relatable figures. So the president was the leader. They were the natural person to go to. Uh, that was part of this. And, of course, presidents were willing to use this tool. And we've seen a sequence of presidents using these tools right through to Trump in the present day, making use of social media, particularly Twitter, um, to try and communicate with people. So that comes out of the single executive, this single leader per, um, who is uh, looked to by the public in these terms. Now, we're not entirely sure how powerful this is as a role. Um, it's notable that some scholars have said presidents can go public, they can sell their agenda and persuade people what to believe in and what to, what to think, 
most people don't buy that kind of idea that the president has a hypodermic needle that they can put into the body politic and just inject ideas. Most scholars are really sceptical of this one. But there is a suggestion that the president has power over the political agenda. They're in a position to go and convince people to think about certain issues. So Trump has done a brilliant job of drawing attention to the issue of immigration, for example, through his use of Twitter although there's a lot of evidence to question that that I'll come back to in a later module. But you can see examples of presidents speaking to the public, Obama speaking about health care, for example, to try and get people engaged with the issues and to support his positions and his legislation. Equally, the role of party leader, which isn't stated in the Constitution, but comes about because the president is nominated by the party to run for the presidency first. That's a significant grant of power that's informal. The president deals with Congress quite often on the basis of a shared party label. So Trump, as a Republican, deals closely with the Republican Party. Um, so you have this uh, series of informal powers that presidents can use um, to try and influence other players in the political system, which is something I'll need to talk about more in the next module. In this module, I'm going to talk about the nature of presidential leadership, or at least one concept of how presidential leadership works. So in previous sections, I've talked a bit about how the Constitution sets up lots of different players in the political system with a range of powers. So the presidency is not a command office where the president simply gives out orders, but the president has to reach out to other players. I want to talk about that a little more. Um, if the president wants to get anything done, if they want to pass legislation, if they want to get federal money spent on any kind of project, um, even sometimes when they want to launch military action, they're going to need support of other players. And that conception of the presidency is something that needs a little bit of filling out, a little bit of thought, because there are all these other players the person who really pinned this down was a guy called Richard Neustadt. Now, he was writing quite some time ago. He'd worked in the Truman administration, um, and um, he was an advisor to um, President Kennedy during his transition. So he was he's quite some time back. The book was Presidential Power. It was published in 1960. Um, but Neustadt really captured an understanding of the office that is really important today. Right. His basic challenge, having worked um, it, with Democrats during World War II, was to explain why Franklin Roosevelt had proved such a great president and Dwight Eisenhower seemed to be proving such an ineffectual president, even though they held the same office and the same powers. And Neustadt's explanation of this has been influential right through to the present day. What he said was basically that presidents were given a position from which they could lead. Not given the power to lead, but given a position, a vantage point in the political system from which they could lead. They had all these other players with all their powers scattered around them. And if the president was to try to lead, they would have to try and persuade those other players in the system to adopt the president's agenda. 
So rather than thinking of the president as a desk giving orders and using formal powers written in the Constitution, you should think of presidential leadership as an attempt to get other political players to come on board to support the president's agenda, to take their little bits of power and bring them together behind the president's chosen agenda. And the phrase, the power to persuade, is the one that people really latched on to and really thought Newstats captured something different about the way the presidency works. Now, initially, a lot of the response to this focused on the president's interactions with Congress and then widened out to think about the president's interaction with other players. So the president's ability to persuade not just Congress, but to influence the operation of the court system, to influence the public, to influence media, interest groups, party leaders, etc. So the idea became that okay, we have this master string puller at the centre of the system. And what decides whether someone is an effective president or not is their personal skills. That was where the scholarship went first. Newstat's models seemed to imply that a lot of the capacity to lead was down to, say, Lyndon Johnson's capacity to influence Congress um, or the rhetorical skill of Ronald Reagan in talking to the American public. You look at a kind of skill set that's about knowledge, information, expertise, persuasion, charm, charisma. A lot of the scholarship really focused on what was loosely called presidential character or presidential psychology. Now, what we've done since then is accepted that this is a good way of thinking about presidents' attempts to lead. They don't have all the power to actually make things happen. But we don't think that it's simply a question of presidential character that allows people to lead. So what I'm going to talk about is how the president's capacity to lead within the political system is influenced by other considerations that are important. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the relationship with President and Congress, a little bit about the relationship with President and Courts, and then, uh, but along the way, I'm going to cover a lot of the things that might make a difference to the president's ability to lead that aren't about uh, whether Trump is an expert on a particular policy area or whether he's a great rhetorician or anything like that. So thinking about presidency and Congress first, the president goes to Congress to get them to write laws in a particular way or to get them to um, spend money on a particular project or to get them to approve appointments or to get them to not interfere in the president's implementation of policies, for example. The Congress has a power of oversight that means they can try and interfere in the implementation of the laws. So what the president wants to do is try and persuade them and to use their power to do his bidding. So largely this is about bargaining, about using a series of techniques where you maybe trade off political favours. Uh, you might, for instance, offer to go and appear with the legislator at one of their campaign stops to give them additional credibility. You might try and make sure that they're not going to have political opponents. You might try and help raise them campaign funding. You might help them with another project that they're interested in, in terms of getting uh, their own laws passed 
promising your support, throwing your weight behind it will help. All kinds of ways you can bargain with Congress. But what actually makes a difference to the president's capacity to get results out of Congress? Well, as political scientists um, over the last few decades, we've identified a series of things that we think are really important. Um, the most obvious thing is who's actually in Congress. All right. Congress is elected separate, in a separate set of elections from the president. They might run at the same time on some occasions, but they're a separate set of elections. That means you've got a bunch of people who are not necessarily beholden to the president who's just been elected. They've run their own campaigns. They've raised their own campaign funds. They've built their own organisations. But the party label, increasingly the party label matters. All right. We used to talk about this in terms of the parties being uh, really disparate ideologically, each legislator being their own little world, their own little individual operation. That's partly true, but party label is becoming more and more important. So it really matters to the president which party is best represented in Congress. Um, so in... Um, uh, the time when uh, Donald Trump had just been elected, having won the 2016 election, he was in an advantageous position because he had unified government. He confronted a Senate and a House of Representatives, both led by Republican Party majorities. He, as a Republican, was talking to people of his own party. And we know that really empowers a president. But it's not actually guaranteed that that is what a president will confront. So after the 2018 midterms, the Democrats were the majority party. They became the majority party in the uh, House of Representatives. So Trump confronted a House of Representatives of the opposite party. If he wanted to pass legislation, he had to get that through both the Republican-led Senate and the Democrat-led House of Representatives. That's a difficult challenge. We call it divided government. Quick aside here. Always be careful to differentiate between the separation of powers and separated government, which is about the way the Constitution creates different powers and different responsibilities, and divided government. Divided government is about the idea that different parties control can control the presidency and different parts of Congress. So you get that, that difference between separated and divided. It's really important to try and remember that one. Okay, so presidents sometimes confront divided government where the other party, whose interests really do not lie with the president, have the power to block the president's legislation. And we end up with long periods of largely gridlock where you can't get much activity out of, out of Congress. The president can try to lead, but he faces um, cross-party opposition. That can be a really difficult situation for a president to try to lead. Ideally, they want their own party in control. But as the Trump example proves, even having unified government, Republicans in charge of the House of Representatives and the Senate and the presidency is not necessarily enough to guarantee that a president can lead. The party does not always follow where the president leads. So, for example, 
Donald Trump attempts to reform health care when he first comes into office. He has unified government. He has himself a Republican Senate and a Republican House of Representatives. But he can't actually get those Republicans to agree on a reform to repeal Obama's health care reform, which is what he wanted to achieve. There is all kinds of infighting and drama, uh, particularly when uh, Senator John McCain delivers the casting vote in the Senate that basically condemns Trump's attempts to achieve reform to failure. Uh, so what you get is presidents knowing that they have an advantage if they're trying um, to uh, lead in unit conditions of unified government, but it's not a guarantee. The party does not always follow. What we have seen over the last few years is that parties follow uh, more and more. They're much more willing to follow a president than in previous years, but it's still not absolute. And Trump's a great example of this problem. Uh, he struggled with his own right-wingers as well as some of his own moderates, uh, the so-called Freedom Caucus, uh, which is a group of right-wing legislators, were very unhappy that Trump wasn't pushing the repeal of Obamacare hard enough and wasn't coming up with a conservative enough reform. And they were really awkward customers when he was trying to win over their support. And you get the bargaining process that I talked about in a previous module playing out um, as they try and threaten him with uh, withdrawing their support and he gets very very cross with them very upset with them and let's face it Trump's good at expressing his upset um, and you watch this within party dynamic falling apart and eventually leading to a really significant defeat for Trump so unified government is no kind of guarantee and it's really important how presidents try to approach Congress to get reforms from them. they've really got to think about this strategically and carefully and that's actually proved to be one of Trump's weaknesses now there are other things that make a difference therefore um, to a president's ability to lead Congress. It's not just about party, but in that example, it was about the ideology. It wasn't the party was in a majority, but it didn't hang together ideologically, and that limited the president's capacity to lead. Traditionally, Democrats have had this problem too. So when Obama tried to pass health care in 2008, 9 and 10, he had the same problem, only it was the moderate centrist Democrats who were struggling to get on board without alienating the left. So most presidents have to navigate this difficult ideological terrain. Now, another consideration as to whether presidents have a good chance to lead Congress and lead the political system as a whole, in fact, is public opinion. Is the president actually popular? That's something that's really contentious in the scholarship in the field. Um, so um, a lot of people assumed for a long time that a popular president would be more influential over Congress. And the evidence on this one, though, is really, really mixed. So, yes, lots of people might approve of the president, but that doesn't mean Congress is simply going to do their bidding because of that public approval. Um, George H.W. Bush was enormously popular after the um, uh, first Gulf War um, back in the 1980s, but he couldn't get much change out of a Democratic Congress. Um, and what this speaks to is that a lot of the legislators have their own considerations far apart from how popular the president is. 
Um, so public approval doesn't make a massive difference to a president's ability to lead if they're popular. What we do know, though, is that presidents really struggle to lead Congress if they're unpopular because their own party drifts away from them as they become a political liability. So it's easier to oppose the president. So it's not that high ratings definitely lead to a capacity to lead or a power to lead because you've got new legitimacy. But we do know that having really poor approval ratings lessens your ability to lead Congress. Another thing that makes a difference, of course, is the policy area you're trying to lead in. So certain parties are associated more with being in the public mind, with being able to deliver particular policy areas in a concept called issue ownership. And Congress is more or less supportive of the president on certain policy areas over others. The first person to really get into this was a guy called Aaron Wildavsky, who came up with something called the two presidency thesis, where he said, OK, in foreign policy... Presidents are given more leeway to lead in domestic policy, healthcare, economy, welfare, etc. Not so much. Presidents don't have the same capacity to lead. Now, that was a study done during the Cold War, and the effect seems to have diminished. But there's still a dynamic here where presidents are more able to lead in some areas than others. And there's been a lot of interesting work done on this, some of which suggests that it's actually the complexity of the policy area that matters. If it's really complex, the president has more opportunity to influence people's thinking. Uh, if it's salient, it's something that's really in the public eye, the president might have more capacity to influence the public's thinking and therefore more ability to influence um, Congress. But when you're thinking about analysing any individual set of events, think about the nature of the policy area as well as just thinking generally about presidential leadership. Another thing that influences um, the president's capacity to lead Congress is simply events. Major events happen, and sometimes they'll focus the agenda so that everyone is looking at one particular issue at one particular time. The classic example is the attacks of September the 11th in 2001, but you have other examples such as the economic crisis of 2008 going into 2009. That's a particularly interesting one because George W. Bush was president when that first broke, and he was seen as a really weak president. Poor approval ratings, uh, a very much damaged reputation because of two wars that were going wrong in Iraq and Afghanistan and growing economic problems. But when it came to the actual economic crash where companies were going under and the banking system was under threat, he was able to come up with a proposal for massive spending, quite the opposite to what you would expect a Republican to advocate, but he's able to get that through because the sense of economic crisis is so great that people are willing to go with the president's plan. He gets major reform through just before he leaves office when you'd expect a president to be really struggling for influence. And indeed, Obama gets elected, comes in straight after him and gets another set of reforms through on the basis of the economic crisis. What's happening there? There are a number of things going on. People look to the presidency for leadership. There are some really interesting studies saying that people think that presidents are more charismatic simply because there's a crisis going on. George W. Bush suddenly became charismatic. It's an interesting concept. Um, so what you get is 
people's attitudes, the public focus on this single elected executive for leadership, and Congress looks to the presidency because it can act quickly. It's, Congress is a large, unwieldy institution. It finds it hard to get its plans together. The president comes in and says, this is a crisis, we have to do this, and quite often Congress is deferential under those circumstances. So events, and particularly crises, can make a real difference to the president's capacity to lead. Now, you can do the same kind of analysis looking at the president's ability to influence the courts. That is something which I'm not going to do at great length here, but do bear in mind that presidents try to influence the way the courts work to fit with their ideology. They have a power to nominate judges to the lower courts and justices to the Supreme Court. And although the Senate has to sign off, confirm those nominations. Um, they can try and influence the way the court acts to interpret legislation. Um, so um, when you think about the Supreme Court, you'll get into the idea that there are quite often seen to be liberal and conservative justices. And a president will try to get people onto the courts who reflect their ideological views to influence the way the courts will behave. And there are other things presidents can do as well that might have influence. So, for example, um, they will publicly shame the court, they'll make statements about how they think a decision shouldn't have been taken or a particular decision should be taken um, to try and pressure the courts using that bully pulpit to uh, influence the public to influence the courts. Um, they will try to um, ask US attorneys, so federal government officers, to, to uh, pursue particular cases uh, or indeed ignore certain cases to try and make sure certain things get attention in the court system and certain things are ignored. So there are a series of tools there. So just as the president tries to influence Congress, the president will try to influence the courts as well. Okay, so what I hope I've done in that module is take you through the sense that the president is seen by Neustadt as this master string puller, this person trying to coordinate all these other political power centres in Washington and beyond to try and line them up behind the president's agenda. It's a perpetual strategic challenge for the president to pursue this. Uh, it's, it's enormously demanding. It demands real strategic thought. And you watch presidents struggle with this challenge time and time again because it's not necessarily the case that just their skill set will be able to sort this out. Sometimes the system is so aligned that it's impossible to achieve things. So a lot of the skill of presidential leadership is about choosing what is possible, what changes that there are there that you can facilitate and what things might be impossible. All of that said... There's one more part of this uh, uh, that I need to talk about, one more module, which is about executive power, which sharply contradicts Newstat's model. So it's worth seeing all that I've said here in the light of what I'm going to say in the next module. This fourth module is about executive power and the imperial presidency. Now, a lot of the material in the previous three modules has based, was based on a real assumption about how the presidency and indeed the US political system works. So the suggestion was there are all these multiple centres of power and the president's job is to try and somehow miraculously get all these players to align behind their agenda to make things happen. That was the basic contention of Richard Neustadt's work and a lot of the work that followed from it. 
But you do need to ask yourself, and there's a lot of scholarship that has asked this question over the last few years, is that fundamentally wrong? Can the president act alone? Do they have executive power which can override the actions of all these other power centres? Now, this first came to prominence with the concept of the imperial presidency uh, from Arthur Schlesinger's book looking at uh, the uh, Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon's presidencies. Um, But it got a great deal of attention with the start of the war on terror and George W. Bush's assertions and at the same time, a um, series of works looking at presidential executive power. So we are in a period where we're asking ourselves whether there's now a new imperial presidency. Now, this starts right back with the Constitution. Um, When we talk about the Constitution outlining the president's executive power, that was really vague. Right, that phrase in the Constitution seems to not amount to very much, and the label that the president will be the chief executive doesn't amount to very much. But that limited formal power, that unspecified formal power, has clearly ballooned into something far more significant. Um, it seemed to reinforce the impression that it's a weak office, but we now see that a whole series of things happened going right back to the 1930s and 1950s which empowered um, the presidency and made this executive power far more substantial. So when the founders wrote the constitution they didn't expect the federal government to be a big operation but over the last century there was a transformation in the responsibilities of the federal government. With the onset of the Great Depression the federal government took much more responsibility for the economy With the onset of the Second World War and the Cold War, the um, federal government took on much more responsibility for uh, uh, an expansive foreign policy. And in the 1950s, during the um, post-war demilitarisation, you had a period where there were efforts to introduce new policies around welfare, social security. Those go back to the 30s and uh, forward to the 60s. There's a period where the federal government vastly expands its responsibilities. Now, what it does is set up a whole series of bureaucracies. Congress can't run all this stuff. They can't be administering the programmes that the federal government's creating. So you end up with them creating big bureaucracies and delegating an awful lot of power to those bureaucracies. So suddenly, the chief executive who is going to be overseeing this small organisation, the federal government, the president, the chief executive, now has an enormous executive to be chief of. It fundamentally changes the nature of the presidency because suddenly their role of overseeing the implementation of the law, this executive role, becomes a massive responsibility overseeing a federal bureaucracy, depends how you count it, but of up to four million people. So actually the nature of the presidency changes quite radically and one of the really important power centres are the bureaucracy who are out there actually doing the federal government's business and the argument goes if you're going to believe in this as a real source of presidential power that the president tries to bypass all the other powerful players in the political system and just give orders straight to that bureaucracy to tell them to implement laws in the ways they want to on the basis of their concerns, priorities and ideology. 
if you actually buy this as a way of understanding the US political system, then you are saying that you have an incredibly powerful presidency. Because what you're saying is that, yes, there are laws, but the president gets to implement them and to interpret them and to tell people how to implement them. They run the government. And that it could be conceived as a real threat to American democracy. So when you hear assertions in the media about the power of the US presidency and whether the president is abusing their powers, a lot of this comes down to whether the president is trying to bypass the rest of the political system to get the bureaucracy to implement laws in ways that maybe don't even fit with how the law was written or even the wording of the law. So... You've got this massive expansion of government, these new capacities that come to the presidency. And certain things happen alongside that that really reinforce this growth. Firstly, the presidency is recognised by Congress as needing help to actually organise all its operations. So what's created is an executive office of the president. Some of the literature will call that the EOP, some will call it EXOP, EXOP. But that executive office of the president is a group of staff who work directly for the president. Many of them don't need to be confirmed by Senate. A few do, but most of them don't. And you end up with a series of offices that can help the president plan policy, um, publicise particular messages, um, uh, can oversee an awful lot of the national security operations that are involved. Uh, can bring together policymakers in various other parts of the federal government to get them to coordinate their action. That EXOP, Executive Office of the President, is a real source of power because it's a flow of information and expertise, uh, and it allows the president to reach down into the operations of the bigger federal government, the broad executive branch, and try and influence how they operate and how they're implementing the law. So firstly, there's the arrival of this new office, which grows from Franklin Roosevelt's time under, under Nixon. It has about 5,000 people working there. It's now back down to a sort of more reasonable 1,800 or so people. Um, but you have a group of people whose work is dedicatedly for the president. This is a long way from George Washington and his nephew mm. being the White House. Um, so you have this bunch of people working which allow the president to exploit executive power, allow him to take a series of actions. This staff magnifies their influence by providing time, energy, expertise that the president couldn't do. It means the president can do much more than they'd be able to do on their own. Now, alongside this, presidents have developed a series of tools to try and influence the bureaucracy. So the most prominent of these are what are called executive orders. These are documents that are signed by the president, each one individually numbered and published as part of the Federal Register. So they're official documents and they're sent out to the bureaucracy to order the bureaucracy to behave in particular ways. Some of them are really low-key and virtually irrelevant, you know, declaring a half-day off for federal workers um, around Christmas, some, that sort of thing, very low-key. Some of these are really significant documents. So one of the first things a president does when they come into office is issue a series of high-profile executive orders that give attention to the issues that they want to act on. So um, when Donald Trump came 
came into office, one of the first things he did was issue an executive order intended to implement the so-called Muslim ban to constrain immigration from certain uh, uh, Muslim-majority nations across the world. So that was an executive order sent out to say, this is how immigration services and customs services should be handling people entering the United States. So these things can be really influential and really powerful. There are a series of similar tools, uh, like executive orders that presidents use, such as presidential memoranda, which became very prevalent during the uh, Bush and then Obama administration. Um, you can have uh, presidential directives, proclamations, interpretations of congressional intent, con sorry, congressional intent, the so-called signing statements, which reinterpret laws that have just been passed. There's a whole series of executive tools here that presidents use, basically sending documents out that act in the short term as having the force of law. All right. Now, they can be legally challenged and they can be, as happened with Trump's um, ban on immigration from particular entry to the US from particular Muslim nations. They can be challenged in the courts, but in the short term, they have the force of law, which suggests the president can just issue these orders, do the dramatic signature on the piece of paper, send it out, get the government to behave differently. Now, that combined with the um, growth of the institution of the executive office of the president and this great executive power adds up to a concept called the imperial presidency. The suggestion that the, power, the presidency has become a command institution, that the presidency can simply give those orders from their desk in the Oval Office and the American government will respond. It's an extraordinary opportunity to lead. Uh, Schlesinger wrote about this as saying that the media and Congress had failed in their responsibilities to co constrain the president and, in fact, that the basic constitutional order in the United States had broken down. It's a pretty dramatic argument saying effectively that American democracy has been, um, if not absolutely killed, at least um, circumvented by presidential innovation. Now, that is not the whole story. So I'm just going to wrap up by saying there are limits to this executive power, just as all the other presidential powers are limited. The other players in the political system can respond if an executive order is issued, the president, the president may get his way in the short term, but Congress can write a new law. They can reclaim that power if they want to. A lot of this is done by delegation. There can be challenges to these actions in the courts, so you get a whole series of legal exchanges over each of these contentious acts. Uh, when there's political controversy, there'll be a series of legal cases, and we'll see them prog the cases progress through the court system, potentially right up to the Supreme Court, who will decide what is legal and what's not, um, and what the law was intended to say and what not. So what you get is a dynamic of presidents trying to work out how far they can push their executive power without triggering a response from the rest of the political system, a resistance which might lead to the president being unpopular or might indeed lead to the rest of the political system turning around and saying no to the president's exertion of executive power. Don't think of this as a breakdown in the US political system. All right. This is not the presidency now untrammeled and the destruction of the system of checks and balances. What you do have 
is a presidency with more powers because of the great bureaucracy they now command and the tools they can use to try and influence it. They are more powerful, but the same battle can follow from these kind of presidential actions. They try and assert their boundary, their power, they try to push back at the constitutional boundaries, but the courts and the Congress can step up. It's really a question of political will as to whether they decide to undertake opposing a president. So, for example, um, the president might do something that's deeply unpopular and therefore it will be in the interests of legislators potentially to make political gain by opposing that action. On other occasions, Congress will sit there and go, that executive order suits us down to the ground. It saved us the effort of having to pass legislation. We're glad the policy is being implemented in that way. The other thing to note is that when these executive actions are taken, they only last until a president decides to overturn them. So when Obama left office and Trump came into office, a whole series of Obama's executive actions were overturned very quickly by the incoming Trump administration. So these actions are extremely influential at the time that they are taken, but they're not necessarily long term. And you watch legislation, uh, you watch executive action taken, and then a president come in and reverse those as as a matter of course. Now it's become a part of the ritual of a new president coming in. So when people talk about a new imperial presidency, as uh, Andy Radulovich does, picking up the Schlesinger idea. Um, take it with a pinch of salt. This is still an ongoing political contest. The president is now equipped with a series of new advantages by which they can take this first mover action and influence the way the system runs. But it's not the collapse of American democracy uh, that some would have you believe. Where it gets interesting is where people don't have the political will to oppose the presidency, so perhaps under conditions of unified government where Congress will stop scrutinising and stop opposing, there you get to the point where maybe you've got real concerns for the fate of American democracy. So what I've done in that module is, I hope, given you a sense that there's another way of looking at the system, not the new stat way of thinking about it as all uh, separate power centres, that the imperial presidency really challenges that view, that way of thinking about the presidency. But actually, when you look at this play out, the presidency is more powerful because of this, this expanded executive power. But that doesn't mean that the American political system has collapsed. Okay, that uh, concludes those uh, series of lectures. I think excellent lectures by John Herbert. Very clearly explained and illustrated uh, all the way through from the constitutional position to the formal informal powers and then the two big sort of areas of argument uh, when you look at the power of the president uh, this uh, Neustadt argument um, separated institutions sharing power was another phrase that he used um, and while these can be contextualized in the period in which they were writing, uh, as with, say, Schlesinger in the, the notion of the imperial presidency, at least the first of the, the academics and, and indeed insiders to sort of propound this view, that was put across, uh, obviously, reflecting on Johnson, um, got into Vietnam, Nixon, obviously a, a president who had a degree of sort of dodginess about him as well and, and tried to sort of use executive power. Uh, often because he faced um, political opponents in Congress. In that sense, he wasn't, for a period of time, his presidency not that strong. And clearly, uh, for the latter part of his presidency, under the cloud of the Watergate investigation, 
Um, I think that's a pretty clear uh, consideration of it. I uh, hope you find it very useful. Uh, bear in mind also, for instance, the, the executive order that um, Trump brought in leaving the Paris climate uh, change uh, sort of treaties and the Paris treaties as they're called. And uh, notice that Biden coming in will uh, essentially re rejoin or return um, uh, the, the US to that equally uh, moving from the World Health Organization. Biden again will reverse that decision. Now, uh, it's, it's unlikely that those actually will be significantly challenged. Um, probably they're, they're ones that will go through, but there, there's still opportunities. As I said, very much depends uh, for good or ill uh, whether the Congress is unified behind a, a president in the White House. Presidents, of course, are supposed to get this notion of a, a honeymoon period. Um, they talk about the, the first hundred days. Clearly, one of the big things on Biden's plate I will be to test his leadership because it is a crisis and an increasing crisis, and that is uh, the management of COVID. Uh, on his side, uh, undoubtedly, um, there is the, the emergence of the vaccines. Um, Pfizer and Moderna, particularly, being effectively with ruled out in the United States of America, that that may um, play a part in possibly even uniting the country and reconciling themselves behind Biden. But don't think that uh, he's going to have such an easy time. Uh, There's a very toxic political situation in the United States of America. There's 75 million people voting for, for Trump, and a significant number of those, and indeed a significant number of legislators, uh, doubting the, the, uh, the election and believing um, right-wing conservative uh, news sites that this election in some way or other was fraudulent and stolen. Um, to look out also for particularly what happens in the Senate, um, key institution, particularly in foreign policy actually, and also in the appointments process. You saw how very anxious Trump was to get uh, another justice on the Supreme Court, particularly a justice re replacing a liberal justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died, and replacing her with another female, that's almost a guarantee now, female for female, and there are three uh, females on the court. Uh, historically that's been a pretty new thing, when he first emerged with Sandra Day O'Connor under Reagan. But uh, the change to Amy uh, uh, Coney Barrett, uh, clearly uh, fairly presumed to be anyway, a fairly conservative jurist, is, is going to make some difference there on, on decisions potentially like things like Obamacare uh, down the line as constitutionality and um, also Roe v. Wade. Of course, the court themselves are a reactive institution. It depends on cases coming to them. They're also, to a certain extent, conscious of public opinion. Uh, they're also conscious of precedent, um, and regardless of where they stand, be they liberal or conservative, uh, they're fearful sometimes in the court being perceived to be uh, politicians in robes. So worth looking at. And although the, the uh, Supreme Court is not directly part of uh, any examination on A21, it is it is worth bringing that into mind because it's a it plays such a key role as the ultimate arbiter of the constitutionality of decisions. This case coming through at the moment about free speech. But a girl who was not selected um, to be a cheerleader and then went on, on to a fairly abusive rant on social media. And the school uh, that she attends effectively uh, were wishing to sort of punish her. And the question arose, because she did that outside school time, she wasn't in uniform. Uh, she's taken a legal case uh, through the American Civil Liberties Union, actually, about protecting her First Amendment rights. And that particular case uh, is making its way all to the Supreme Court. Lower courts have actually ruled in her favour. Uh, and it will be one of the first opportunities for the Supreme Court to rule uh, on the extent to which speech on the internet 
is subject to any controls or restraints or whether the broad notion of freedom of speech under the First Amendment applies there. Uh, so if you actually look at her rant, it's pretty appalling. It involves, you know, middle finger and the F word on a regular basis. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, this is issues uh, could set a wider precedent about um, what you can or cannot say in, in criticism and in terms of speech. Okay, so that's the end of that particular series of lectures. Hope you find those particularly useful.